So, first off, for those of you who don't know why we're keeping the kids over here, every fifth Sunday, which falls around four times a year, we like to give our kids the opportunity to stay not just through worship, but also through the service. Now, if you've got a really young one and you're like, man, I'm not sure that they're going to make it through, please know that you can absolutely send them across the street. But here's the reason why we do this about four times a year. First off, we believe that the conversations we're having here are also relevant for them. And so they, they can absolutely learn from this. But secondly, and this is even more importantly, is the recognition that we have that we are not the spiritual head of your children's lives. You as parents are, and it's our job as a church to equip you to be the spiritual leaders of your home and to raise your children in the, in the way that God has called them and that you have been entrusted to do so. And in order to do that, they need to watch us learn. They need to watch us worship. And so for those adults in the room, I'm talking to you right now, young eyes are watching, no dozing off, please, okay? (laughs) Tommy, you gonna make it? All right. Uh, For those of you who are just joining us, we have been in a series for about the last month, we've been working through the letter that Paul wrote to the Christians living in and around the city of Ephesus. And specifically over the last three weeks, we have been working through that first chapter. Let me give us a little bit of reminder of what we've, we've learned so far, because remember, this is a letter. It was intended to be read in one sitting. And so the context of what has come before will really help give the foundation for what we're going to look at today. Paul begins uh, after introducing himself and his recipients that he was intending to write to. He then enters into a time of worship, a time of praise, but rather than praising the people he's writing to, instead he focuses heavenward and he says, I want to praise God from whom all spiritual blessing flows in Christ. And he begins to then enumerate the ways that God has blessed us in and through Christ. And when I say in Christ, you're going to hear me repeat it a lot. Because Paul's assumption when he writes is that he is speaking to other believers, people who have a faith in Jesus Christ, and because of that, we have been caught up in him. We are known by him. The the letter to the Ephesians is a letter all about identity, about who we are, but our identity is found in Christ. And so I think something like, 11 times in 14 verses, he uses that term in Christ or in him. In Christ, we have been chosen. In Christ, we have been predestined to be adopted into God's family. In Christ, we have been forgiven. We've been reconciled. And in and through Jesus Christ, God has given us his spirit to reside in our hearts. As a stamp of ownership, God's saying, this one's mine, and as a way of empowering us to do what he's called us to do. After that prayer of praise to God, he then focuses on the people that he's writing to, and he lets them know, listen, I have been praying for you, because Paul is well aware that the atmosphere that they live in, they're in and around Ephesus, is one that is given over to pagan worship. They believed in Ephesus that there were other gods, particularly the goddess Artemis, that held all the power. They they called this goddess things like all-powerful, Savior, Lord, Queen of the Cosmos. And so Paul then says, wait a minute, she's not all-powerful, our God is all-powerful. And you know how all-powerful he is? Let me show you. He raised Jesus from the dead. 
That's how he's shown his power. Not only that, but he seated him at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and power and everything. He has seated God with him there. And so there is nothing that is not beneath Jesus. So you call Artemis Savior? Uh Uh-uh. Jesus is Savior. Because he is the only one that has given his life so that we can live and be reconciled to God. But God didn't leave him dead. He also rose from the dead, and he he is at the right hand of the throne of God. So now he is also the only one that is worthy to be our Lord. Artemis is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And God has placed all things under him, including the church, his body. And when we say the church, and this is something you'll hear me reiterate a lot because it's important, he is not talking about a building. In our culture, we refer to a building as a church, but that gives us the false impression that a place is holy, when in reality, we are the church. You and I and every other man, woman, and child who has given our hearts to God, we are the church. And that means that people don't simply go to church, they interact with the church throughout the week. And when you go to school, the church goes to school. When you go to work, you are the church there. And when you're working out at the Y or, or at 24-hour, wherever you happen to exercise or you don't exercise, when you are building your table muscle over at soup plantation or something, I don't know, right? You are the church. And now Paul turns to that church and in chapter 2, he begins to describe the awesome gift that our Father God has given us. So let's go ahead and read the passage we're going to look at today, beginning in chapter 2 of Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, the one in your hand is now yours, unless you grab somebody's next to you, in which case I can't give that to you, but maybe they can. Okay, here we go. Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, the people he's writing to, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. So like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his love for us, God, who's rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgression. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this isn't of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is to, in my opinion, the single most beautiful concise, poetic declaration of the gospel found anywhere in scripture. I love it. Because within these 10 verses, Paul does three things. First, he explains what we have been saved from. That's verses one through three. 
Then he shares what we have been saved by, namely grace, verses 4 through 9. And then finally, what we have been saved to or saved for, and that's verse 10. And we're going to unpack this today, but there's one more thing I need us to remember as we go through this, and that's this. Yet again, Paul is assuming that the people he's talking to are Christ followers, that we are already in Christ. How do we know this? Because three times in these 10 verses, he uses the term in Christ, and three times he uses the term with Christ. There is this expectation that we have already been found in Christ, and everything he's talking about here is, is built on the foundation of us being in a relationship with God following our Lord and Savior. Because remember, Jesus never said, hey, pray this prayer and you'll be with me. He said, follow me. Allow me to not just save you from something, but to show you how to live. Make sense? So the expectation is this is that, that we are in Christ when he says this. Now, let's begin to dive in. He begins by painting a picture of the human condition that every single one of us is born into in this sin-scarred world. And it's not pretty. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desire and thoughts. So like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Paul recognizes that we each, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden, we each have gone our own way and made choices that were contrary to the heart of our God, recognizing that it would cost relationship, not only with him, but with one another. But before we beat ourselves up too much, he also recognizes this isn't just because of our own propensity to sin. He also recognizes that there is a spiritual realm that we can't see with our own eyes, but that affects us every single day. He refers to it as the kingdom of the air, because just as the air is around us, we may not see it, but it still affects us. There is a spiritual realm that impacts us, and there are spirits within that realm that do not bend a knee to Jesus Christ and are constantly coming alongside, just as the serpent did to Adam and Eve in the garden saying, hey... Did he really? Listen, he's holding out on you. That thing that, you, that he says don't touch, that very thing can give you what he doesn't want you to have, but you really need it. And so there is a spiritual realm that affects us. We'll talk a lot more about that when we get to chapter 6. But for this morning, I just want us to recognize that both the Greeks and the Jews would have recognized this spiritual realm. But what they would have differed on is who was in control from their perspective of that spiritual realm. The Greeks would have said, well, Artemis is in control of the spiritual realm. She is the queen of the spirit of the air. Whereas the Jews would have said, no, it's Satan. Satan is working in our world. He and his minions are trying to thwart the work that God has begun. But regardless of who you believe is somehow in control, and we would recognize that Satan really is the one who is at work behind the scenes at times trying to tempt us and do all of these kind of things, the point is this. We cannot simply say, well, the devil made me do it every time we sin. 
We can't find a devil under every rock and say, every time you, you have a flat tire, the devil, right? Every time that you get cut off on the street, it's the devil and that person that made them do it. Whatever it is, we can't simply say the devil because we have a tendency within ourselves to follow that impulse. We have made choices to give into our flesh. Whatever feels right, that's what we're going to do. And we follow the spirit of the culture in which we live, even though that spirit flows contrary to what God would want for us and what He calls us to. Now, uh, when, when a cell in a body grows any which way that it wants... With, without any thought to what the rest of the body needs it to do, what do we call that cell? Cancer, right? And cancer has this ability to begin to, to eat away. It creates tumors. It, it corrupts other healthy cells. And it ultimately, if unchecked, leads to what? Death. And in the same way, we are a whole lot like cancer at least the way he's describing us. We have done our own thing. God may have designed us to be him as image bearers, to join him in the care and cultivation of his creation. But when, we're, when we were dead in our sins, that's exactly what we were, dead men and women walking. There was nothing redeeming about us because we were not submitted to and doing his will. We were doing our will. And then, because of that, we were, by our very nature, deserving of what? Wrath. So the last thing. You were, by nature, deserving of wrath. That's the end of verse 3. And then comes this wonderful word, but. Right? And let's not press into that too far. We love that word, but, because it shifts the whole focus. You were deserving of wrath, but that's not what you got. Because God recognized that we earned grace, right? Wrong. But God, because of his great love for us, notice, it has nothing to do with us deserving It has nothing to do with us earning. It has everything to do with who God is and how he feels towards us. But because of his love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, and mercy is a word that means you don't get what you deserve. When a cop pulls you over and you have been speeding by about 20 miles an hour in a a residential area, hypothetically, right? And the cop pulls you up and goes, what are you doing? And I go, I just didn't notice, you know, where I was at. I had just gotten off the freeway. And the cop says, hey, drive more carefully, okay? And then walks away and gets in his car and drives away. And there's a sense of, I didn't get what I deserved there. That's mercy. And God, in his love, is rich in mercy. And because of that, he made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions, in our sins. And it is because of grace that we have been saved. Paul will begin to drive home this idea that we are saved by grace, not by our efforts. Grace is a word that means means getting what you don't deserve. 
getting something you don't deserve. Anybody here ever received a present when it wasn't your birthday and it wasn't Christmas, just out of the blue, something wonderful was given to you? Anybody here? How's that feel? Pretty wonderful. You ever feel guilty about getting that present? Well, what did I do for this? Like, what, what, what's, what are the strings attached to this? Why are you giving me this? And a lot of times we tend to be hesitant. And Paul's saying, listen, God loves you. He's not willing to give up on you. And so although you were deserving of wrath, you have been given grace. You have been given a new lease on life in Christ. And not only are we given a new life, and, and when I'm talking about life, let's just stop for a second because there might be confusing for some of us. When we talk about life and death, we tend to think my body works, I'm alive, my body no longer works, I no longer have breath in my lungs, I'm dead. But when we're talking about life and death, we're talking about it in a spiritual sense of connection to God, what we were created for, and disconnection from God because of sin. When we are connected to God and doing life with Him, we are alive. That's what we were created for, and that's what we have eternity to look forward to, is being with Him. When we are disconnected from Him, we are spiritually dead. So let's just make sure that we have those terms defined, because when I talk about being alive and dead, I'm not talking about your body working, your body not working. I'm talking about you being connected to God or disconnected from Him. So we're not only reconnected to God because of His grace, but we also, the things that are true of Jesus suddenly become true of us. So do you remember back there in chapter 1 how God described, or how Paul described what God did in and through Jesus? Not only did He raise Him from the dead, but then He elevated Him to sit at the right hand of the throne of God with Him in heaven. Now that we are in Christ, Paul says that we too have been raised to life and have been situated with Jesus in heaven. Let's keep reading here. Verse 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Are we sitting in heaven right now? Well, you press the metaphor. No, we're sitting here in this building in Costa Mesa. But we're in Christ. He is our head. We are the body of Christ, which means that our head is, in fact, in heaven with God, interceding on our behalf, which means that we can actually have a conversation with God. We can actually share our heart with our Father in heaven. We can pray to Him, and He will hear us because we know that Jesus carries our prayers to the throne of God, and He hears us, which, by the way, is the reason why we pray in Jesus' name. Because it's Jesus who is our intercessor. It's Jesus who ultimately hands our prayers to the Father. What an amazing turnaround. I mean, we go from being sinners to being declared to be saints. We go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. We go from being prodigals who are far from home to being adopted and secure sons and daughters of God. We go from following the spirit of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air to following the Holy Spirit, the same one that was present in the creation of this world. 
and through the empowerment of Jesus through his earthly ministry and the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. What a remarkable turnaround. And not only that, but we go from being cut off from our Father to being able to have communion with him, even now in the midst of this sin-scarred and broken world. But lest we begin to beat our chest and say, look what we have done. Look at how far we've climbed. We have solved the human predicament. Paul reminds us this has nothing to do with any of our effort. Verse 8, for it is by grace you've been saved. It is the, I'm sorry, let's try that again. It is by grace you have been saved through your faith. And by the way, faith isn't something you do to earn it. Faith is simply the act of saying, this is for me and I receive it. I know I don't deserve it, but I'm taking it anyway because you want it for me. Okay? Faith doesn't earn it. Faith simply receives this gift of grace. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this isn't of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by any of the works that you have done so that nobody, nobody can boast. Nobody can beat their breasts and say, I've done it. I did it my way and I solved the problem. I earned my righteousness back from God. Now, we talk about this, and we know this, and here's the hard part is I know that I'm telling you stuff you already know. And so for us, we go, yeah, grace is pretty amazing. That's great. Let's move on. Is there a point that you have today, Eric? And it's almost as if it it has gotten lost because words are simply not sufficient to be able to articulate the gravity of this gift we've been given. And so sometimes I think pictures do a better job than words of conveying the power, the gravity of what we've experienced. And so this morning, I want us to watch a clip from a movie that for some of you, um, your parents won't let you see for a couple of years because it's PG-13. So Ethan, you're excited, I know. Um, he's like, can I watch PG-13 movies? I'm like, you're 10. Yeah, but can I? I'm like, come on, dude, seriously? So we're going to watch a PG-13 movie, but it, it's appropriate, mostly. Um, this is from the last in the final installment of the Lord of the Rings. Okay. There's a moment in which these two hobbits, these two little people like Jeannie and Charlie, um, (laughs) these two hobbits have been carrying a burden throughout about nine and a half hours of cinema at this point. And this ring for our purposes, symbolizes the sin that you and I carry around and we have throughout our lives. It's sin that we have attempted to deal with on our own and have been unable to do so. And this sin will ultimately mark our destruction. Well, for Frodo and Sam, they have, they have rid themselves of the burden of that ring by throwing it into the place where it was created. But in so doing, they've also marked their own death. Because there's absolutely no way that they could possibly save themselves from the same destruction. Perfectly describes the human predicament. And yet, as we will see, that does not necessarily mean that that is what they get. So this, to me, is perhaps the best cinematic picture of the transformation from death to life. Let's go ahead and watch.
bloody tree. Rosie caught dancing. She had ribbons in her hair. If ever I was to marry someone, it would have been her. It would have been her. All right, that's all you get. You have to watch the rest of home. But for me, that, that epitomizes the transformation that's taken place. We who are objects, by our very nature, we're deserving of wrath, deserving of death, eternal separation from our Father. But he loved us so much that he did for us what we never could have done for ourselves. And in so doing, he has given us a new lease on life that is eternal. And that is good news. And I, some of us might go, well, you say that this is the, the, like the best articulation of the gospel, but why would it be good when we start with the first third of it being focused on the negative? our brokenness. Why on earth does he spend that time? Why not just jump right into the good news that we've been saved and all that kind of stuff? But the reality is, I mean, we sing this song earlier this morning, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But grace doesn't really feel or sound all that sweet until we realize just how wretched we really are. And then, 
then when we recognize how little we deserve it, then it really truly does feel amazing. And so, Paul begins in the first three verses saying, here is who you were. This is what you deserved. But because of God's love for us, this is what he's given us, verses 4 through 9. We have been saved by grace, not by anything we've done, but by what he has done. And a lot of times that's where we button up our, our gospel presentation. That's it. We've been saved. Jesus is Savior. But we stop short of explaining why he is our Lord and what the purpose of him being Lord in our lives is. But Paul does not stop there. He goes on in verse 10 to now describe for us what we have been saved for. Let's go ahead and read. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, the first thing you might notice is that word good works. In the church, it's often used as a bad word. Good works mean nothing. And just a little earlier, he said, not by works. You've been saved, but it wasn't by works. And now he's saying we've been saved for good works. Let me be very clear. We are called to do things, but we can never do things in order to earn our standing with God as if, it's, as if our good works are prerequisite to our salvation, to our relationship. It is not a, 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 a prerequisite, rather it is a response to what he's already done. Out of gratitude, we, we couldn't have earned the right to be adopted as sons and daughters of God, but we have been adopted, and so in light of that, let's live as his sons and daughters, okay? So that's the first thing I want us to notice is that good works play a part, but it's after the fact, not as a prerequisite. Secondly, there's a word in there that we have in our English translations translated as handiwork or, or masterpiece or something like that. The, the word there that is translated handiwork is the Greek word poema. Anybody want to venture a guess what English word we get from that? Poem, right? We are God's poem. Anybody here write poetry? Dabble in poetry? Are willing to admit it? <laughs> right? I know, for instance, like Terry Phipps writes poetry. I have a book of her poetry. I dabble in it. Uh, it, it, every once in a while, there is, there is a thought, an idea that must come out, and, and simple words in explanation will not suffice. It has to be poetic. And so I, I, I put my hand to it, and the reality is, my poetry is an expression of my heart. And I write poetry with as much my heart as I do my head or my hands. And in the same way, we are God's poema. We are the tangible representation to our world of the heart of our God. We reveal his heart in the same way that he had intended for the kingdom of Israel to reveal his heart as a kingdom of priests who would represent him to the rest of the world. And when they couldn't figure it out and they just thought all the blessings were for them, he said, fine, I'll do it myself. He sent Jesus and Jesus represented God's heart for a time. And now he's saying, you, as the body of Christ, get to be my representatives. One more thing I need to clarify here. We tend to read this verse through 21st century lenses. 
We tend to read this verse as speaking to each of us individually. You are a poem, and 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 you are a poem. We're all poems! God's writing lots of them, but he's God, so he's, able, he's capable of doing that at all at once. But remember that this is being written in the first century through first century lenses. And in the first century, they did not think the way we did. They do not think as individuals. They think corporately. And so when he says that we are God's poema, his handiwork, his work of art, his poem that he's writing, he's talking about the entire group that he's writing to, the believers, the body of Christ. We all are that poem, which means that there are, there's only one poem, not millions, and we all have a part to play in that. Every man, woman, and child who's given their hearts to God and found themselves in Christ is part of that poem. So the best way we can describe this is that we are each a word in the love poem, this epic love poem that God is writing to a world that is sin-darkened and desperately looking for hope in all the wrong places. We are a part of that love poem in which God reveals his heart to them. But before you think that this somehow diminishes our value, remember this. Whereas in writing an article, you can take a word out and it doesn't really change it that much. In poetry, where there's a rhyme and a cadence, every word matters tremendously. And you and I each matter. We may only be a word in this epic love poem, but we matter. And every single one of us plays our part in representing our Father's heart together. Make sense? So what's the point, Eric? What are you driving at? I'm driving at that we we have this unbelievable opportunity not solely to be saved from certain death because of our sins. That's maybe what we deserve, but that's not what we got. We got a new lease on life and we have a restored purpose, the same purpose that God created Adam and Eve in the first place for, to join him in caring for creation and to be a representation of his heart as his image bearers. The thing we were created to do has once again become our purpose in life, but we can only do it together. And it requires us laying down our own little stories, our own little poems that we think we're writing in which Jesus is just a bit player to help give us our best life now. Laying that down so that we can find our place in the much grander story, the much grander poema that he is writing through his people. And I would also recognize this morning that there are some of us in here who have yet to take hold of the gift of grace for which Jesus died on the cross to purchase for you. And maybe in your mind you're thinking, oh, yeah, but I'm not deserving of it. <laughs> and I would agree with you, you're not. But then neither am I. And neither are any of the rest of us here this morning. And that's the whole point If we're talking about what we've earned, well, we know from Romans that the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. We have been given a gift. In his mercy, he has not given us what we deserved. Rather, he's given us the gift of grace and new life through Jesus Christ. That is his grace. 
And so rather than holding him at arm's length and saying, ah, I don't deserve that, just think about that gift that somebody offered to you when it was not your birthday, when it was not Christmas, and when you had not done something to earn it. They simply did it as an expression of their love. You matter to God. He loves you. And regardless of what you've done, He's never stopped loving you. In fact, he's been pursuing you for a long time. And this morning, the invitation is to simply take hold of the gift that he has offered to you, new life, meaning relationship with him that begins now and will extend far beyond the grave. When the sun has burned out, he will still be that light with us and we'll still be able to do life with him and it, although we're not saved, although the, let me, let me just back up. But although we are not, uh, the, the invitation is not pray a prayer and you are saved, but rather follow me, the beginning of a journey begins with, okay, I'm in. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my Savior. And so this morning, let me just begin. Let me, let me model for you what it looks like to begin that journey with Jesus. It goes something like this. God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving me. I know I don't deserve your love. I know I've done a lot of things that have pushed you away. And I am going to trust that you love me anyway. Thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to die in my place. Thank you that you modeled for me. New life, that you purchased that for me on the cross. And I thank you that I am no longer a recipient of wrath. Instead, I have been given grace. I thank you that because of you, I can just come to my Father and I can talk with him, and, and he loves me. I pray, Father, that you would show me what it looks like to be your son, to be your daughter, to be your poema. Have your way with me. Jesus, you lead on. I will follow. God, thank you for your amazing grace. Jesus, in your name, amen. Now, I need to say, there's nothing magical about the words that I just said. And every time I pray that prayer, it's different. Because all it is is the expression of somebody who is grateful, extending their hands to receive that gift. And if you have yet to take, to take hold of it, I encourage you to do so, whether it's this morning with somebody that you, that you trust to walk with you through that. We are a body. We, 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 are, we are a a family of God. And so we're not called to do this by ourselves. But I'm so grateful for the reminder that we have gone from death to life and that we now have a part to play in representing the hope that we have found to others who are lost in darkness. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. I'm going to ask a few of our, our elder couples, um, you know, Tommy, if you can come up here. Um, Kathy and I will be right over here. Jeff's in the back. If you need prayer for any reason this morning, we just want to be available to you. But let's worship God now, our Father, and celebrate the amazing gift of grace that he has lavished on us.
that we should be called sons and daughters of God. Let's worship together. As Eric was talking, it kind of reminded me of this little fragment of a song that I wrote, and I thought, oh, this might be a nice intro to this next song we're going to sing. So I just want to share it with you. Um, It goes, but God, who is rich in mercy through Christ, who made us alive, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. Together with Christ By grace we have been saved 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 Sing that with me, by grace By grace we have been saved, 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 amazing grace, how sweet sound it saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now I'm found was blind but now I see twas grace twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved how precious did that grace appear the hour I first be Let's all sing as we sing this last part. Amen. Go ahead and stand up if you're able. Just hold I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace. Ransom me and the light.
you made us alive together with you when we were still dead dormant Lord we were we were and we'd been and uh, wrapped and captured and, and uh, held back entropy had us and uh, we were on a path uh, going straight down um Father, you swept in, you scooped us up, and you elevated us beyond any place we could have gotten by ourselves, and you set us into a new life and a new path, and that is amazing. Thank you, God. Amen. I want to invite the ushers. We're going to continue in our worship um, through tithe and offering.